Hello and welcome to Startup Dads. I'm Amrit Santhirasanan, CEO of a high-grade startup, father to a young daughter. Join me as I speak to ultra-successful parent founders, venture capitalists and investors to take a look at the world through their eyes and uncover the lives, drives and strategies of parents and business. We're here to show you that you can grow a thriving business and happy family at the same time. This week's guest is Jacob Verne, founder and CEO of Edumi. Edumi is the go-to mobile-based training platform for the deskless workforce. Jacob's had a fascinating journey creating a startup out of a large corporate while having three kids along the way. Today you'll learn about the forgetting curve, sailing through a headwind, the key skills to learn as a wartime CEO, and persistence through passion. Okay, let's do it. As always, it's great to hear from you all, so do leave me a comment or send a DM on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. Alternatively, reach me on LinkedIn at Amrit Santarasanan, and I promise to get back to you. All right, let's get into the episode. Welcome to Startup Dads. I'm delighted to have Jacob Verne on the show. Jacob, hi. Hi, Amrit. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Uh, delighted to have you on the show. I'm excited for this one. So, Jacob, after reading a little bit about you and my research for the show, I think the, our guests need to hear the journey from you yourself. So could you tell us a little bit about Edumi and your journey for kind of how it arose? Yeah, absolute pleasure to do so. So my background, like pre-Edumi, was working in a you know corporate career, but always very entrepreneurial companies and getting that exposure, and then you know gradually more and more. And then I joined a few years ago. I joined a mobile operator, pretty big, seven billion dollar turnover, sixty-five million mobile subscribers, with a big presence in emerging markets. And I joined them to build a mobile learning service for their mobile subscribers. You could see it as a value-added service. You know, if you sign up with Vodafone or whoever, and you don't just buy data or you know at the time like calls or SMS, and you pay for that, you basically build a value proposition. And so this company, they had this view that there are other things that we can bundle into what we're selling here to make it less of a commodity. And one of those things was mobile learning, because in the markets where they operated, that was not very easy to come by, like quality learning. So we started building out a product back in the day to service that market in Africa and Latin America. And whereas we had pretty good uptake or very good uptake even in terms of like usage, we didn't find a good way to monetize you know, the product. However, I spent a lot of time in market working with with a company and I then saw firsthand how they were struggling to onboard and train their own staff and their dispersed workforce. And as a mobile, very big employer in these markets, they had thousands of people that were selling their products and services on the front line. And I saw how they tried to get people into one of the very few offices or physical locations where they could train people, but that would take them away from, you know, earning money. And they'd spend hours and days going through like induction and training on, you know, what's the company all about? What's the culture? How do we do things here? Good customer service, learn about the product. The upside was for the people who did go through that training, they would be super excited, enthusiastic and, you know, trained on what they were supposed to do. And the culmination would actually be a proper graduation ceremony with caps and gowns and diplomas and things. It was fantastic to see. And they did perform better for a time. Now, the issue was that after a couple of months, people would forget, as we tend to do, right? So there's something called the forgetting curve. And so if you don't repeat something, you don't keep learning, you're going to end up forgetting. And then, of course, also the products and the services, they evolved. 
And so they would know they were no longer up to date. So that was one issue. Another very big issue was they could only get a fraction of the workforce to do the training because most people would never come to do that physical training. And so that was the point where we said, you know, this thing that we've built, which is essentially about like being able to deliver short form content to mobile phone, all of these people that have mobile phones, is there a way that we could help empower them by giving them the knowledge they need to be successful in their jobs? So we turned our attention to that. We ran a big pilot and we could then see that Edumi trained sales agents, they improved sales generation by 12%. And at scale for a company that was turning over billions of dollars in revenue, a majority of that coming through in dispersed workforce, we saw that there's something here. We can really help. We can have impact. I was looking around thinking, you know, surely there are others that have, you know, similar problem, but I couldn't find a good solution. So that's it. That's when we started. That's awesome. <laughs> Doing what we do today. That's awesome. I love stories that end because uh, my story is very similar. That I couldn't find the software, so I did it myself. Yeah. It's a super cool one I can relate to. I suppose, you know, I'm super interested, Jacob, to understand, like, it sounds like Edumi came out. It was kind of born out of this venture that you were doing inside a company. So could you talk to us a little bit about like, you kind of reversed Edumi out of a very, a multi-billion, I mean, $6 billion of turnover. Isn't, this isn't a small company. So how did that, un- how did that unwind? Yeah, the short story of it is, and there's certainly a longer <laughs> one, uh, <laughs> is that we were very, very far from core of what they were doing. And so we were a uh, speck on the map of, of, of something that didn't really move the needle in any way. And so they weren't focused on it. So at the time, I was kind of incubating something in this company, right? And then found like a different type of product. And then we just came to this realization that, you know, trying to continue within the walls of this company doesn't make sense for them. And it doesn't make sense for us either. And so at that point, we just said, you know, I'm just going to go this, I'm going to go this alone and basically start things from scratch because that's what we did. What we did there that was super useful was identifying a need and a problem. And then we went to build an entirely different product around that problem. So it was a, you know, almost, I would say it sounds nice that it was mutual consent. I think there was a little bit more of a, you know, circumstances that meant, okay, I'm going to have to do something. I'm super committed to this. And I do think someone has to solve this problem and I'm just going to do it. It's super cool. And, you know, they often people talk in the kind of startup investment world about founders who feel this kind of compulsion that they have to do something. Right. And I think it's a really generally highly correlated with success. If your motivator is that you believe this has to happen, it's almost like you should only start a startup if you believe that there's nothing else you can do, but you have to do it. Right. Yeah, exactly that. I can totally relate to that. It's like a calling, uh, I would say. And I, I think like other founders, I'm assuming have the same thing, but it's almost like I can only put it as a, almost like a calling. I have to do it. Yeah, uh, totally. I'll never forget when I had the idea for HXR business and it was exactly that. I remember my wife telling me that I was like a total madman for that weekend when I had the idea. And I'm reasonably sure I wrote down huge amounts of total rubbish over that weekend, um, uh, you know, stuff that's turned out to be nothing close to actually where we've gone. That's a really nice segue for me, I suppose, to ask you the question about how you became a startup dad, because you've got three kids, I understand. And it sounds like they've come along in various phases of your kind of the startup bit of your life. When I started Edgemi, we had two children at this point, and they were four and two years old. And so, you know, really young family, like lots going on there and still kind of going from very stable corporate environment 
into like, no, I'm going to do this startup. And, and obviously with all that it entails in terms of like commitment and, you know, less of a setup, let's say, to do this. But there was never like any hesitation. They've kind of grown up alongside Edgemi as well. And then in 2018, our third child, Ella, was born. So we had three children. And in 2018 is also when we were about to run out of money and we raised our seed round and everything was really like coming, you know, towards a crunch. So certainly like all these things happening in parallel and it's hard to it's hard to separate them. Right. It was an extremely like immersive experience and for them to grow up alongside Edgemi to grow up alongside uh, the children. That's super cool. I, I love to talk to founders about this. And it's been very interesting because we've been hiring at the moment. And we were talking to a candidate or hiring for an executive. And she was saying, you know, oh, it's amazing how you've got, you know, you were able to take the risk. And the thing I said to her, I could see the same look in your eyes that I felt, I think, when I said to her, I was like, speaking really honestly to you, it didn't feel like that much of a risk. And it's like hard to explain. And she said to me, Amrit, that's the difference between you and me, right? It's, it's not, irrespective of how much of a risk it was, it's the framing you have in your mind. So it's stressful being a startup founder, right? And I go through those kind of periods where it's too quiet or you're running out of money and, you know, uncertainty is high. Can I ask you, Jacob, like, how do you manage your stress and boundaries during times like that? Because speaking candidly, and I'm very open, I find that very hard. I find it, you know, like you say, HX is my second child. I've only got one real child at the moment, but I find it very difficult to manage the boundaries and blurring in. Is that something you struggle with or are you able to kind of put them into separate buckets? To an extent, but I think I am pretty good at compartmentalizing things. And I do find it's also a source of, of de-stressing coming home and being entirely immersed and consumed by your children that leaves no room for anything else at times, right? So I think that's been very, very helpful also in terms of just managing stress and just feeling the unconditional love <laughs> that you have towards each other and nothing is really an issue or problem as such. And then I try to be strict about, I think as a founder, you constantly think about the company, but it doesn't mean that you constantly have to sit in front of a computer. So even if I think about the company on a weekend, I try not to work. I try to be very present. And one thing I've started doing the last two years is you take stock of the year that's passed and, you know, the good things that you take out of it and main accomplishments and things you want to do differently. And then you set some kind of almost like yearly goals or life goals for the year. And now for two consecutive years, I've put as one of my top priorities is to stay present. And, and that's obviously present for my team here, but it's very focused around family. I have my wife to thank for also a lot of the success that we have with Edgemi without what she's done and how she's really been part of that, it, it wouldn't happen because then there's a give and take and she's sacrificed things for me to be able to to do this. But then, you know, after a few years where she was finally getting back into and starting building a, a new career for herself, she basically had to take, you know, a job and it was like full time and the commute was actually really long, but she didn't dare back away from that. So she was working full time. I was working full time and we had three small children. And so we tried to, you know, I'm sure other people can relate. Like, how do you do that? And then we tried to solve for that by having outside help and a full time nanny. And interestingly, I know you've had someone on your podcast before who runs such a service and she's great. And so we tried to solve it that way. But it still meant that we 
And I, I can't say, unfortunately, Rachel, that we, at the time, we didn't use Kuru Kids, but we could have. But it was like really long days. We'd leave early, we'd come home late, and this constant stress and feeling like inadequate and that you were not there for the, for the kids to the extent that we wanted. It's really interesting. I reflect a lot on this because my daughter, Evie, was born a couple of months before the pandemic. And I think very deeply, I suppose, it sounds like you actually explored that parallel universe that I never actually ended up going down. Because at the start, I had no expectation that I would do anything but go to the office. Right. And I remember the first few months of, <laughs> I did the very startup thing of getting up very early by virtue of Evie getting up very early. And I would take her into the office. Right. Because Sarah, my wife, was still on maternity leave and we, I would start the day early and Sarah would come and get her. I look back on that and I think actually the pandemic triggered a change and it's a change for good. Certainly kind of at the individual level. You know, I think the experiment playing out for the configuration of humans and things that make up companies is still, we're still very early on in that. But it's fascinating to think a little bit about what life would have been like had the pandemic hadn't hit and the social norms, were, they were just different, weren't they? I mean, you look back on it, yeah, totally. it was nuts when you think about the way we used to live. Yeah, in the office every day, long hours and really not that much flexibility. I know maybe some companies did it, but we didn't do much of it. I mean, personally, like I consider myself an old dog in this, like the way I grew up and like my professional career, it was really like long hours and it was office and there wasn't really an alternative at the time like that I considered. And so I brought that into Edgemy and startup world. So I was certainly wasn't at the forefront and COVID opened my eyes to lots of other people. But really, I have to say, you know, it shows that you can learn, you know, what's the expression, old dog to sit. Like it completely warped how I think about things and, you know, the level of flexibility that we can and need and want to give to people working here. And we've really, really turned things around. And, and now I know we're doing, you know, really well in this and, and performing well and ranking for flexibility when it comes to all these various like company rankings and things. And uh, it's really, really different to what it used to be. And I'm, I'm glad, you know, my eyes were opened as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose that my follow up question is, how are you finding it now? I suppose as the world starts to become a little bit more open again, uh, how are you finding kind of the readjustment back to a slightly different configuration? You know, we're fundamentally, we were all forced to work from home. I'm kind of tussling with this now to work out what the right equilibrium state for our company is versus all the individuals. Because I think we've got this strange position. I don't know about you. Everyone agrees that they should be in the office a little, but they'd all like everyone else to come into the office when they're in. <laughs> and yeah. that's a kind of complex <laughs> problem to solve for, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, this is a funny one. So, so my wife is actually a workplace strategist. Oh, so cool. she works with larger companies than ours around like, how do they bring people back to work now? And then obviously I'm living through it firsthand with Edgemy, which is a growing company. We're now just over 70 people and we've more than doubled in size over the last 12 months. You know, and lots of people have joined actually completely remotely during COVID. So what we've decided and time will tell if we are right and how it will work out. I think so far the signals are, are good is we've taken a fairly flexible approach and empowered approach. So we're saying not everyone is the same and every department doesn't work the same way. And so we've kind of devolved that responsibility down to each function level and function head to say, how do you want to work? 
and you will work that out. So product and engineering, they will be in the office less often than sales, where there's a greater need for that, you know, collaboration and working off, basically like, you know, there's a different buzz and you gotta work off each other's energy levels, right? And so that's kind of where we've landed. So each department, they have one or two or three days, whatever it is they decide, where they work together in the office. And then we try to bring everyone in the company once a month to say, this is like our, you know, we do all hands every week, but that's on Zoom. We do one monthly in-person all hands, at least for everyone in our London office. We've got a growing team out in the US, in California. So they get to do their things. And as often as we can, we try to have exchanges. That's super cool. What an amazing person to have in the family team, a workplace strategist at a time like this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's super cool. Indeed. Yeah, lots of interesting discussions. Do you find, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, as you alluded to earlier, as, as a startup founder, you, I, I find myself always projecting every aspect of the world onto my business and trying to think a little bit about how things, things. do you find yourself having more conversations uh, than more, more than you'd expect? Are there a lot of conversations about where you're mining your wife for information about the way the world is going? Yeah, definitely. I think it's an interesting area. Generally, a lot of people, I think, you know, we're all living through this. So I think we're all curious and everyone is kind of trying to figure out what's what's the right way. And you hear some things that sound maybe not so good and others were like, yeah, that's really clever. So let's let's do that. And I think probably as a as a society, we're in flux still and we're trying to figure out like what's the right way forward. The benefit we have is we're still small and agile as a startup. And I think it's easier for us to course correct and adjust than if you're working for a massive company, maybe you have thousands of people that are gonna go back. You know, sure. you, you can't keep going right, left. Yes, this is absolutely true. Again, I was reading something somewhere where we're seeing a fascinating kind of very strong difference between earlier stage, smaller startups that are almost unilaterally going for flexibility versus larger companies. And as you rightly said, if you, you know, you're Google or Facebook or Meta or whatever they are, and you've got tens of thousands of people, the impact of having no structure at all is amplified. It's a fascinating problem to try and extrapolate as a company grows. We've also decided that we really value in-person collaboration. Like you were saying, I mean, some companies, they go for like fully remote, especially in, in our line of business. We've decided that's not quite for us. We're growing so quickly. We learn from each other. We feed off each other. And we're really working towards creating a very strong bonds and strong culture. And so we want to get together and we've seen the benefits of doing it. So we're surely down that track. I remain very convinced that a healthy mix is likely to be the solution for most companies. I'm always very impressed when I see companies who can just go for the extreme, right? Because like you say, candidly, the idea of being completely co-located five days a week just feels stupid to me now. You know, I used to, I joke because like, I can't believe I used to come in to do things that I actually do worse at the office than I would at home. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the commute and then coming home and you're, you know, you're tired every day from that. Yeah. The flip side is when I have to do seven VCs in a day, I definitely also wish for a little bit of a breakup to the day. Absolutely. I'm just back. I was in the US last week and I can see how like that in person again is coming through where people are now starting to meet up again. And the quality of the exchange you have when you meet someone face to face and how quickly you kind of read each other and agree on things and just the return on those exchanges, you know, they, it's, I would say like impossible to replicate just by doing Zoom. So I'm actually happy that some of these things are possible again. And it's like super energizing to meet people in person. Jacob, I'd like to take us down a completely different 
tangent now. I was reading about you and one of the things that fascinated me the most about you is that you were the CEO of a media house before you became a startup founder. I'd love to hear a little bit about the learnings, the kind of crossovers and candidly the not crossovers between your two jobs, because that's a very unusual, well, maybe it's not that unusual. I don't know. I have to throw that to you. I suppose so. It's not the classical, like you start a startup and then you kind of learn everything about, like you build a great product, hopefully, and then you learn how to build an organization. So mine was a little bit unconventional. So I was in a corporate career, but as I mentioned before, like very entrepreneurial company and they, you know, I was a management trainee and they gave people lots of responsibility. And so when I was, you know, I joined them, I spent a few years in Eastern Europe. So the company was making acquisitions. We were acquiring TV channels. And I was on that team, a little bit of a SWAT team where you go in post-merger integration, like get things to, to work out. And it was super, super fun. This is back in 2008, I think. There was this opportunity, like the CEO of the company, who was also kind of an expat there, he decided to leave. And I think they were thinking about like succession and who should do this now. And I just threw my hat in the ring and said, I'd like to have a go. And I think there was, <laughs> I think there was a little bit of, uh, they were wondering, like, can this guy actually do it? I was 29 at the time. And, you know, we had 125 employees and it was fairly complex organizations. So we were running free to air television, like your ITVs and pay TV, like Sky. So we had sports channels and what have you. But somehow career and all these things can be defined by the times when you say yes or, you know, you just you take a leap of faith. And I did that. And someone also took a leap of faith in saying, OK, let's give him a, let's give him a chance. So we were doing that. And funny with the timing, actually, things started in like 2007, 2008. And then if you hark back to those days, that's when we had a bit of a recession. Before the recession, things were going really well. And the company decided to acquire another very big player in the same market and then merge these two entities. And the first plan was to to appoint someone local to do it, then work out. And I, I guess, mutually decided, OK, I will do those things. So we had 125 people in one company, 200 in the other, and we merged them. And then the financial crisis hit. And because we were so reliant on advertising income, you know, one of the first things people cut when you're in a recession is marketing expense, right? And so it's really tough working through that and kind of adapting to that new environment. But we kind of somehow sailed through that storm, you know, with 300 people and we were profitable throughout. And I did that for a few years, actually. And then I said, okay, this has been absolutely amazing and an amazing experience in you know, running a fairly big company and certainly a lot of headwind. But as my old boss said, Jacob, you only learn when you have a headwind. You don't learn if you have a tailwind because you don't know if you're doing well or the market's doing well. And uh, certainly we didn't have any tailwind, that's for sure. So that was interesting. And th but then I said, okay, there have been years of me out in the field and I kind of want to go back home. I just met my now wife. You know, I kind of want to settle down a little bit. And so I took a detour back to Sweden where I hadn't been for 10 years and, you know, started forming a family and our, our first child was born. And I spent a couple of years doing startups with Rockets Internet, which in itself was also very interesting. That's super cool. I'm fascinated to just hear a little bit about the experiences that carried over because, it, you know, I don't think it's a completely uncommon story, the going from a corporate world, as you say, into a startup world, but it's actually quite unusual, I think, necessarily to be a corporate, like you say, a foul weather 
wartime CEOs, as they call them, right? Versus peacetime, peacetime. I know that's a bit of a loaded word to use now, but you know, foul weather CEO rather than fair weather CEO. So, were there kind of lessons that that you can, in retrospect, you can see that prepared you for? Yeah, definitely. Actually, and this is really interesting, and I can totally see that now, like how we went through the COVID crisis, where you have to take really tough decisions. And so, you know, for all of us, it was a bit of a shock. And for many businesses, it was a massive shock. Like, what do you do? Because I'd taken a company through a prolonged crisis before, I'd learned that you have to adjust really, really quickly. And if you wait too long, you might risk the entire company because you wait for things to get better. If they don't get better, you you, you kind of run out of runway and options. So we took quick corrective action. And then we were, I think, very transparent and open about things that were happening and why we were doing them and for how long they would be in place, you know, and really being, I think, leading there from the front and being clear why we're doing it uh, and that we're taking resolute action. I think that really, really helped us come through that and, and hopefully, you know, with people's feelings for leadership and the company intact, even though everyone had to make concessions during that time, everyone came together. That was certainly something that I could bring from from that company and taking tough decisions and standing by them and explaining them and doing them quickly and resolutely. I think that helped us get through the COVID crisis initially and the resilience that you build, but you build that in, in a startup too, I think. So that was certainly something from that side and also working with a larger organization and people and how you scale up and how you scale down when things are going well or when things aren't going so well and standing by those decisions. I think the the time at Rockets Internet was interesting because I learned other things from there and they're famous or infamous depending on who you ask. But I think they've done many things really well. One thing is transparency of how you realize you can move much faster if you have almost like radical transparency in that company and how you empower people to do things. And that's something I think I've brought into Edgemi. Transparency and commitment are critical things. I've seen very clearly that you need to show your team to give confidence, actually. And, you know, what you described there, that kind of focused, transparent action and being committed to them, being resolute is a really great word. If you're not sure, how can you expect your <laughs> your team to be sure? Yeah, of course. Of course. Has having kids changed the way you make decisions? I'm sure he has. And I think to an extent, he helps build even more empathy, perhaps. And I also think, but maybe it's harder how I would transpose this into like taking decisions. I think it's certainly provides a well-needed balance. I'm sure you see the same thing when you have kids. You can see what actually really, really matters in life. And it gives you, I think, a little bit maybe more of an ability to zoom out sometimes and focus on, you know, finding priorities because it does lend a lot of perspective. So possibly that's, for me, like the key thing is perspective that you can apply to, you know, to the startup and kind of work life in general. The time horizon, that zooming out really resonates with me. In a startup, it's very easy. And I, I, I don't know about you. I, I have to work very hard to be a good CEO. And, you know, one of the things I think for me, being a good CEO is not reacting just to what's in front of your nose because there's an infinite amount that just turns up in front of your nose every day. And it's very easy. Speaking like my candidly, my natural tendency is to just go after all of that. But having kids is an amazing way for you to think about the long term. I often ask myself the question, like, what do I want to 
tell Evie, my daughter, that I did. It's a really powerful, really focusing thing for me, actually. Helps defeat my ego very effectively if I if I yeah. do. Yeah, and you probably want to lead by example as well, and you, you feel like you want to live up to their expectations, perhaps, but something you're proud of, right? And, and not just what you create, but how, how you do things. 100%. It's a really good point. It's not just what, what you create. It is definitely how you do it, how you go about your business. Yeah, having kids is a real focus. So Jacob, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your kids? <laughs> I think uh, probably like many entrepreneurs before me and after, there is a lot to persistence and resilience because there are so many opportunities to give up and there's so many opportunities not to succeed. I think if you have that real passion about something, and I'm sure it's rooted in that passion and that belief we discussed before, that there really isn't an alternative. I've never considered, not even for a millisecond, an alternative to Edgemi and that Edgemi has to be successful, even when things have been dire. And so I think believe in what you're doing, find something you're passionate about and that resilience, because in the end, that unlocks so many wonderful things down the line that wouldn't have happened if I'd stopped at any of those many opportunities to say, you know, it's not worth it or it's never going to work or something like that. You're absolutely right. I was reading a book actually called The Score Takes Care of Itself. I don't know if you've heard about that. It's a really fascinating book by an NFL coach who talks about leadership. He's legendary for his leadership kind of approach. And one of the things he talks about is often the times when you're closest to despair is when you're, the success is really close. And, and if you don't have the means from what you're describing, that passion to pull you through that, you miss those. As I read that, I was like, I can definitely, I see that very clearly, actually. Yeah, there's another, speaking of football, any given Sunday, the Al Pacino movie where he's a football coach. They fight for for every inch. And I totally relate to that. You know, when most people give up, that's where you have to persist. And that might be just where you reach that tipping point where, you know, 99% of others, they will stop. You won't. And that eventually creates success. For sure. Yeah, I really like what you're saying resonates with me because one of the nice framings is, you know, a lot of victories are won by people who refuse to go away. Right? Mm. <laughs> it really me, you know. <laughs> so, uh, really, really great framing. Persistent through passion. What a great way to frame. It must be an amazing rocket ship going through the world that has become more dispersed, more remote. And I imagine there has never been more of a demand for Edgemi. So maybe we can have you back one day and hear a little bit about that side of things. Yeah, 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 absolutely. For sure. Like everyone can now relate to working remotely and we're focused on the deskless workers and people who have been doing 80% of the global working population not actually sitting in front of a desk. And those are the people that we feel are like vastly and hugely underserved and where we want to empower them by giving them access to knowledge so they can be successful at work. And that's really motivating to work towards where you feel you can really make a difference. Yeah, I mean, I think the world has broadly been kept going by these people. And I think about the leverage that a company like yours can have in increasing the productivity and happiness of that workforce. It's fucking awesome. Don't worry, it's startup <laughs> dads. So the kids don't listen, so it's fine. Uh, 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 um, uh, Jacob, look, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Before we go, we like to wrap up with our segment Startup Shoutouts, where we shine a light on some organisations in the startup world that we admire. Startup Shoutouts. So who's your Startup Shoutout? 
I'm going to be cheeky and do two that are slightly different, if that's okay. We would use both of these startups internally. One is Spill, which is a mental health app. And uh, we've really found a lot of value from this, especially during pandemic, which has been tough on a lot of people. So it gives a really easy way for people to speak to someone and ventilate and, and get support. And the second one, which is also around employee well-being, is Juno. It's a rewards system. So everyone in the company, they kind of accrue Juno points every month, and then they can basically exchange those for a whole range of different kind of employee benefits. And that's also really well liked. And so I could recommend both of these to many other startups. They've been great. This is awesome. I, I always joke that this show is a bit like free founder coaching for me. And those are both going straight over to my people ops and performance lead. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your story. Your journey has been absolutely fascinating. And yeah, you've been a great guest. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I think you're doing a, a great show. And it's, it's nice to combine, you know, these two passions of like the children that mean more than anything in family and startups. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at Startup Dad's Pod. 